Welcome back to Tap.az Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Walters. This is the final installment of A Year in Waiting, a memoir by Nicholas D. Butler. My man, Nick Butler, met him a couple years ago, episode number 87. He was, him and his dad created Limelight Brewing, and they were making beer in-house for Binkley's Restaurant, and just a really cool guy, really, really great story, him and his dad uh, bonding over beer. And Nick's just a great dude and hadn't seen him for a while after we recorded the episode. Ran him to him at Wondering Tortoise. We just was like, hey, you know, catching up. And he's like, hey, you want to check out my book? And he sent it to me. It was great. It was incredible. It's a quick read. This audio version is, it's great because it's Nick narrating it. You can feel the emotion. And, you know, I just, I always like that when the author actually reads the book. So the book itself is about his journey, basically, of uh, you know be, being a college professor, losing that position and taking another position two hours away, two hour uh, commute. In the meantime, trying to learn how to work in a very high stress uh, environment of fine dining here in Phoenix. So just a really, I, I love it. I love it. So um, this is wrapping it all up. This, in this one, we hear about, uh, there's a literal circus. Literally, they had a circus in, uh, right there in the neighborhood. So, um, if you know where the place is at, you know what I'm talking about. So, that really just put Nick over the edge. Uh, So, this is just really his, you know, reflections after leaving. And, you know, one of my favorite parts is advice for us as diners to help make the experience um, great, right? Because... It's a it's a dance, as he says in this. It's not a it's not a fight. It's a it's a dance, and and when both partners can know their role and and you know play up to their expectations, it can be a beautiful thing. So this is great. Now the book itself is available in paperback at Lawn Gnome Publishing and Bookstore. It's at Fifth and Roosevelt downtown Phoenix. You can also go to lawngnomepublishing.com. You can find next book there. Amazon subscribers can get a digital copy for their e-readers, and um, you have this also, the four-part series. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. Let's get into this. A Year in Waiting by Nicholas D. Butler. A memoir, not not order. A Year in Waiting. A memoir by Nicholas D. Butler. There we go. Uh, all right. Enjoy. Chapter 10. Trust Requires Honesty Private events were unusual at the restaurant because of the performative style of service and extravagant expense, but during my final week there were two, a holiday party for a national company's executive staff and a 50th birthday celebration for one of our regular guests. The former pushed our physical capacity of 24 guests to its very limits with 30 people in attendance. The latter finally broke my spirit and caused me to sever my professional relationship with the restaurant. When I started, the capacity of the restaurant was set at 20 guests, or 9 tables, by our chef. However, as the year began to draw to a close, a sense of urgency to try and make the year more profitable was palpable. There was never an announcement, but once October arrived, the guest count began to creep up to 24 guests and be overbooked on a nightly basis. It may not seem like much, but growing by 20% in the dining room meant sacrificing details of service that physically couldn't be met compared to the level of attention given to 20 guests. 24 will never be 20. Four more people meant a larger profit margin for the restaurant, but nothing additional in the form of compensation for the staff. Extra effort was not only expected, but commanded by our chef. Work 20% faster! So after two grueling months of operating beyond our usual capacity, which was already considered insane by our colleagues in the service industry, hemorrhaging our guest count to 30 people for a private party was like having dinner at a drive through hamburger joint while awaiting a heart transplant. Nevertheless, our new capacity was 24 guests, unless you had enough money to make our chef an offer he couldn't refuse. 30 guests times $200 plus 8.6 sales tax, 22% gratuity, and an open bar meant a gross revenue of at least $12,000 for the evening. Most local restaurants struggled to reach that number in a week, so turning down the event was never even a consideration. Beyond the difference in scale, 
Private events meant two significant alterations to service, past hors d'oeuvres on the terrace and larger tables to accommodate 8 to 12 guests per table in the dining room. Of course, walking trays around clusters of guests at the onset of service was a welcome substitute for synchronized service on the patio with tours, but it also carried the promise of humiliating condescension from guests who were there to socialize among the elite stratosphere of society who could afford to attend such an event rather than appreciate the world-class culinary experience we prided ourselves on. The amount of waste from private events was always shameful. Half of the hors d'oeuvres were never consumed, and the same behavior held true in the dining room. Precious ingredients like caviar, sea urchin, foie gras, king crab, duck breast, truffles, and elk loin were routinely dumped in the trash unless we snuck bites from untouched trays on our way back to the kitchen or subtly donate the untouched plates to the workers in the dish pit. Guests at private events could care less about the intense labor it took to create the culinary confections and polished ambiance in our restaurant. It was something we all took personally, and our chef always regretted halfway through service. The restaurant needed the money, but it came at the sacrifice of the honor associated with our craft. Private events always created a lose-lose situation. After being ignored by guests while passing neglected hors d'oeuvres, patiently waiting for drunk guests to pause their raucous conversations to describe dishes that would be mocked for including items they had never tasted and would discount without a single bite, and calling upon every member of the restaurant staff in order to walk to tables of 12 for the style of exacting synchronized service our chef expected of us, everyone's mood grew sour from the taste left by private events. By the time guests would finally leave, which was inevitably after additional hours of after-dinner drinks and sometimes cigars on the terrace, the entire staff was pushed to a breaking point. From my experience, there was never a private event when our chef wouldn't take his frustrations out on each member of the staff and dispense barbed criticisms we ruminated on into the wee hours of the morning. The GM was no different. Anxiety about adjustments to service would manifest themselves in the forms of passive aggression and muttered insults as he engrossed himself in fussing about micro-adjustments that needed to be made to place settings. As our busser would repeat hundreds of times during private events, long after the kitchen staff would leave and we polished seemingly endless racks of glassware without a shred of hope for overtime compensation, it's too much, amigo. Chef only cares about the money. This shit is crazy. He was right on every level. At the end of this particular evening, the host added a $1,000 tip for our outstanding service that would have gone a long way to ease the stress we had all been through. But by policy, it all went to the house. The sour taste in our mouths had grown bitter, and it was only a matter of time before we grew angry. My final service was originally scheduled for a double shift on New Year's Eve, but I regrettably couldn't make it that far after service for the second private party we hosted during my last week, an event that literally transformed the entire restaurant, including the parking lot, into a circus in order to celebrate a guest's 50th birthday with 36 of her closest friends. As we found out the night before, technically the morning of the event, after we finished polishing only hours before, we needed to park several streets over to ensure there was enough room for a big top tent to be erected by the party planner's crew before we arrived an hour earlier than usual. The GM insisted we keep questions to ourselves until the day of the service so we didn't get too far ahead. The GM's temper was short, and his eyes kept darting away to avoid our gaze. We all could sense that the circus was going to be a shit show, but only the GM knew the details of just how bad it was going to be. If he told us, we probably wouldn't have showed up. The morning of the circus, I rolled out of bed only a few hours after our last shift ended, made some coffee, and drove back to the restaurant to find that the transformation was already well underway. A crew of a dozen workers were unloading three overstuffed U-Hauls that were spewing decorations like a piñata. Fake six-foot hedges had been staged to cordon off the restaurant from passers-by on the sidewalk like an elegant crime scene. A false ceiling had been installed around the terrace using upside-down yellow umbrellas that hovered above an oversized red carpet. Large spools of fabric had been draped from the ceiling to the floor of the dining room to create the effect of being inside a hot air balloon. 
And, as promised, the entire parking lot was in the middle of being converted into a dance floor with a DJ booth, space for acrobats to perform on a pole, and a vacant space where my replacement needed to build a second bar later in the evening while guests were in the dining room. We had lost complete control over the restaurant. As I made my way into the kitchen to greet everyone, our chef seemed unusually distracted by the whimsy of it all. There's going to be a lady wearing a living cocktail dress to greet people with all the glasses resting on her dress. I wish I were going to this party. It's going to be incredible. Everyone seemed bizarrely upbeat, and I genuinely wanted to share our staff's positive mood about how special the event was going to be. But when I started the daily checklist, it was immediately clear that all of the tables and chairs had disappeared from the restaurant. Where is everything? I asked the GM. He pointed to the trucks and finally started sharing the laundry list of variations we were accommodating for service that evening. The first of which was to work with the assembly crew, who had already moved our furniture to an area behind the tent that was exposed to the elements like they were bulk trash, and install the flimsy pop-up tables with plastic chairs they had brought. 36 guests meant six tables of six, and absolutely zero room to navigate in the dining room especially when several courses would require six people to walk at a time. Nevertheless, the GM dictated that this is what it's going to be. The problems only grew worse as the day progressed and the GM quietly barricaded himself in the office. We were wandering around the restaurant, aimlessly trying to figure out what was going on and looking for things to do because the vast majority of our routine had been completely thrown out. Meanwhile, the party planner, dressed in reflective aviator glasses, fatigue bottoms, and a bedazzled blazer, became increasingly more insistent on following his orders like a general staging a coup, left with few options between escalating to war with the party planner or submitting to his assumed leadership, I gathered our front of house troops and redirected our forces to helping our kitchen staff, who, it turned out, were deeper in the weeds than soldiers on the ground in Vietnam. Our restaurant was being invaded, and it would take everything we could muster to defend our reputation from failure. For the rest of our time until the daily meeting, the expediter helped prep, the busser plated courses, and I worked in the dish pit for an hour before cooking the entire family meal from garlic roasted chicken and loaded baked potatoes to steamed green beans and a chef's salad. Half of the kitchen's actual family members were conveniently joining us for the meal that day, and of course the party planner had to be fed so there were at least two dozen people to feed, the size of our normal guest count. As the GM later commented, we wouldn't have eaten at all today if you didn't help out the way that you did. Although, while I appreciated his sentiment, there were still a cryptic number of details he was keeping to himself until our final moments before the circus began. The only time I've written more notes on an alert sheet than my first day at the restaurant was on my last. Ironically, a year to date from my first service. It turned out guests would be arriving 30 minutes earlier. We would be setting up a caviar buffet in the bar. Cocktails would need to be staged on a performer's dress at the entrance of the restaurant, but their proper arrival would also necessitate not waiting longer than five minutes for consumption due to the egg white element of the drink. Moreover, the bar would be open, so guests could call their own orders. We would be walking extremely fragile glassware on glowing light boards between guests during hors d'oeuvres and nine courses would need to be completed in the first hour of service to keep to the timetable scheduled by the party planner so speeches could be made in the dining room. The menu was completely different from the night before, so everything needed to be rehearsed and memorized. Plus, the additional nine courses in the dining room would also need to be completed in an hour and a half in order to ensure guests had enough time to enjoy the surprise dance party in the circus tent after dinner. The host hadn't inquired whether anyone had allergies or restrictions, so the plan was to tell guests, we'll see what we can do if anything was brought to our attention, but as we all knew, the answer was always yes. With 30 minutes left until service after the meeting, the GM knew that we had no acceptable option other than to try and maintain our standards of service as best we could, given the circumstances. When guests arrived, there were cocktails waiting on the living cocktail dress. When they made their way into the bar area, there was a kilogram of caviar surrounded by buffet of condiments for them to enjoy while they ordered their next round of drinks. Guests arrive in Bentleys and Rolls Royces with ladies draped in furs and the gentlemen in shimmering topcoats. 
The extravagant amount of wealth on display, particularly to those who were making less than $200 that day, was uncomfortably vulgar. When we weren't whisking cocktails to the entrance, we were checking expensive coats that had been worn for all of 10 steps from their escorts. When we weren't checking coats, we were taking drink orders because guests were already arriving drunk and downing their opening cocktail before they even stepped into the restaurant. When we weren't making drinks, we were walking delicately arranged hors d'oeuvres from the kitchen that went virtually ignored by guests who were already full or watching their weight. The few guests who actually tried the first courses, oblivious to the buster standing next to me with a tray, would actually discard remnants onto the floor, so when we weren't serving, we were hunched over like flamingos cleaning. The kitchen staff was entrenched in the back, and we were on the front lines trying to advance through machine gun fire. The party's guests were the types of people who get downright nasty when their whims aren't perfectly accommodated, such as not having Bud Light on hand. So they would instantly demand reparations, especially in the form of attention. The conundrum of trying to consistently provide one of the finest dining experiences in the world while catering to uncompromising demands and personal preferences is a challenge that restaurants have universally yet to solve. By the time guests began making their way into the dining room for the seated portion of the service, they had already sent all of us, especially the GM, scurrying to the far corners of the restaurant to fetch their fancies. To make matters worse, the ocean of alcohol the guests had consumed had fed into tributaries of wandering speeches as well as lines to the restrooms. There was only an hour and a half scheduled for the next nine courses, and the party planner was insistent that the dance party needed to start promptly, so the speeches were painfully stealing time from the kitchen. Food was dying on the pass, and our chef was furious. He couldn't take it out on the guests, so anyone that crossed the threshold to the back of the house knew they would be paying a toll. Walking courses usually meant waiting for all guests to be present, but things were already out of hand with people up crassly joking with other tables while they waited for the bathroom, so I had to make a judgment call to bypass the GM standards. We were going to start pushing, a common term for immediately walking items, as fast as possible. The expediter didn't want to be responsible if the GM or chef saw what we were doing, so I took over expediting by assigning the busser and expediter to seat numbers, and we all grabbed two plates instead of borrowing three people from the kitchen. Ready for table two? You've got seats five and six, I've got seats three and four. I nodded my head, and we synchronized our service to the first three guests at the table, then shifted to the next three. I briefly explained the course, as guests routinely continued talking across the table and at peak volume across the dining room with other tables, but we made it work. Plates were finally moving, and the kitchen was lining up the next course, largely in the dark about how we were making it happen, but satisfied that progress was being made. During the remaining hour of service, I barely recall seeing the GM. I noticed him adjusting candle holders and flower arrangements, likely catering to odd requests from the guests that the rest of us had started ignoring to focus on expediting dishes. That evening was the first service I felt like the GM had been truly overwhelmed by what undertaking 36 guests in the restaurant actually meant in terms of compromising our, and especially his, standards of service. The circumstances, the guests, and the situation had grown uglier as the night drew to its epic conclusion, a tent filled with circus performers and professional dancers. During service in the dining room, the replacement I had been training in the preceding weeks had fortunately set up a second bar station in the tent so he could tend to guest orders while we cleared all of the dishes and broke down all the furniture inside. Unfortunately, a dessert station also needed to be set up and tended to in the tent, where performers were breathing fire and acrobats were contorting themselves on poles. That meant that I was the only person left to clean up. The GM was processing checks and working with the party planner to set up a parting gift station, so I spent the hours that followed trying to process why we weren't getting additional compensation after going through all of the extra effort and enduring the added abuse that private events like the two that week necessitated. I was hired to work a shift, not a circus, so why were the two being conflated? When I started working that year, after the first three private events I survived during the holiday season, I asked the GM why we weren't being paid overtime for the extra hours and labor it required to serve private events. That's our chef's policy, was the answer he echoed throughout the year. So I knew how he would respond if I asked yet again. It was time to confront our chef. Unless it was going to be my last night of service, I needed to hear a justification 
for why I should continue volunteering my service. I needed to at least hear an earnest thank you, acknowledgement of going above and beyond already world-class standards, or receive a modest request of time and a half for private party shifts moving forward. Unfortunately, it was too late. The kitchen staff was already leaving. I watched through the front windows of the restaurant as our chef walked past without saying goodbye, while I muttered to myself in the bar, polishing racks of glassware alone, knowing that there were still two weeks of holidays with my friends and family that I would be missing for the second year in a row. Adhering to our chef's policy was no longer a matter of personal sacrifice. It was a form of professional abuse we were expected to suffer. The glass I was polishing shattered in my hands at the realization. That night, I came to the conclusion that our chef didn't see me as someone who committed his life to serving in the restaurant industry. Therefore, I wasn't worthy of earning the type of wage I needed to pay my mortgage and have the security of knowing that the restaurant would always take care of me like it would for our chef or the GM. They were looking out for the livelihood of the restaurant, and I could no longer trust them to look after me as well. My abilities had grown far beyond the wage I was earning, but would never be equally valued. Emboldened by the decision I made in that moment, before our chef could cross the street, I leapt from behind the bar and called out for a moment of his time. He stopped, and I approached to look him in the eyes with a single question. Can those of us working on shift wages please have overtime or a portion of the tip for tonight's event? The answer was, absolutely not. You're paid by the shift, and that was tonight's shift. Disappointment was written all over my face. We were having the third type of conversation all over again. But this time, I was on the other side of the decision. I could no longer trust that he would care for me as a member of the restaurant's family so they could work the rest of the year without me. I turned my back and returned to the bar to clean up the shards of glass on the floor. I finished polishing the rest of the racks and gave my notice when the GM eventually returned. There was no need for further conversation. I was done being a servant. Chapter 11. Honesty Requires Courage. The following service, I turned my keys over and said my farewells to everyone at the restaurant in person. Like every story, for each hardship, there had been a lesson, so I hope our chef would agree that we ended on even terms. I provided a level of insight that helped elevate the restaurant to further heights at a discount, in exchange for a year in waiting that pushed me in a direction I may have never taken the time to explore. I was thoroughly humbled by the experience, and it was difficult to leave the team I grew to love and respect beyond words, so I kept my comments simple. I've learned more in the past year than any other in my life. Thank you all, from the bottom of my heart, for the honor of working beside you. There were firm handshakes from our chef in the kitchen, embraces from the front of the house, and even a few selfies with the expediter, but not nearly enough time to savor a final bite. I exited through the staff door and took a last look back to wave farewell, but everyone had already returned to their checklists. Looking back wasn't an option at the restaurant, but in the weeks and months that followed, I struggled to distance myself from continuing to consider how to make the performance of service even better. My continuance over the past year required increasingly obsessive lengths, ruminating thoughts that fed my insomnia, struggling to recover from the physical fatigue, and dealing with the uncertainty that my future held. I needed time to digest. The day after I quit, my spouse immediately started planning daily social gatherings to reunite with our collection of friends, proclaiming, I finally got my husband back. But the last thing I wanted was to be around people who had never spent a day in service. It felt like returning to regular society after being in the military. I was still processing how I had been changed by the battles we fought on a daily basis at work, and no one in our social circle, especially my husband, had a frame of reference for the level of sacrifice it demanded. The discipline the restaurant required sharpened my vision, trained my nose, developed my palate, hardened my body, and bent my spirit to a breaking point. I was initiated to a fraternity of millions who are painfully aware of the disparity that exists between consumers and the consumed in our culture. I felt like the service industry spit me out in the same way colleges treated me as a disposable commodity, and my husband expected me to abandon the notion of having a career of my own. I had nearly been consumed, and there were days when I felt closer to death than I ever wanted to revisit. I had completed a hero's journey to a new world, but wasn't meant to stay at the restaurant. 
nor was I meant to remain the same in any respect. Everyone at the restaurant collectively served as my teachers for my year of service, but we all had to accept the truth that my evolution was taking me in a different direction. The call to adventure had come with many sacrifices, but it also sustained me by providing newfound skills and renewed confidence in my ability to endure. My personal growth required severing my professional relationship with our chef, but I gained the courage it would require to blaze a new path forward in my life on my own terms. My personal goals for the year were to maintain control of my temper during service, avoid severe injury, and steal myself from shedding any tears. I'm proud to report that my conduct met those goals, although I thought about breaking them on a daily basis. I wanted to see what it takes to survive a year in a world-class restaurant, and I had more than a taste of what it takes to thrive in one. The stamina of a boxer. The bandwidth of a computer. The curiosity of a scholar. The obsession of a detective. The bonds of a family. The drive of a train. The performance of an actor. The reverence of a disciple. The timing of an orchestra. The submission of a servant. The spirit of an artist. And the courage to grow. Chapter 12. Courage Requires Growth Nothing changes your perspective as a diner more than working in the industry. From the design of an establishment signage and the authenticity of a host welcome, to the signing of the bill and a waiter's closing remarks, everything matters. On more than one occasion, our chef recounted to us how at the conclusion of an extraordinary meal at a legendary restaurant in Paris, their waiter was nowhere to be found when they were ready to pay. When the waiter eventually returned with the bill, everyone noticed that he reeked with cigarette smoke. It was the only thing our chef can remember from the meal, so we all came to recognize when he cited the memory that there was never a moment during service when we could lose our focus if we truly wanted to give our guests the finest experience possible. There was a reason why our chef inspected the sidewalk prior to guest arrival. There was a reason why we never parked near the entrance of the restaurant. There was a reason we were always ready at least 15 minutes before service was scheduled to begin. There were thousands of protocols, and for each one, there was a reason. Our chef or GM, or someone who suggested an improvement, had witnessed something they regarded as the best they had ever seen. And that's what we strove to provide on a nightly basis. Cultures of excellence are fueled by a commitment to discipline and an unquenchable thirst for improvement. Operating in such an environment requires extreme passion, so whenever I venture to a new place, my eyes are always scanning for signs of better, and I'm always delighted to unexpectedly encounter it like a dear friend. My favorite moments of any service were when guests would realize the thoughtful design of why we operated in a specific way, set the table in a particular style, or prepared courses using painstaking techniques to optimize the combinations of ingredients. In particular, there were three guests that I always enjoyed waiting on because they acknowledged all the nuanced flourishes we meticulously scrutinized that would never cross the minds of most restaurants. The diner I admired the most was a petite Japanese woman who would come in every month to sample the new menu and dine alone completely satisfied to savor the experience in silence. It still makes me smile reflecting on the way she would beam with delight when I would bring a course of precious ingredients to her and describe their preparation. Waiting on her taught me a lot about cherishing the revelatory moments in dining that you'll never forget, so her example is one that guides my own philosophy. In contrast, my most challenging guests were a couple from New Zealand who would dine with us seasonally and actively criticize us in a constructive way to improve any areas we might overlook. Waiting on them was taxing, and most of the staff preferred to avoid their scrutiny, but I honestly loved it when they came to visit. They had traveled the globe several times over and knew how to play their roles as diners. From their appearance to their demeanor, they understood the dance, the repartee and balance required to facilitate an exquisite meal. An evening with the Kiwis in the house felt like executing the ideal wedding reception. Their expectations were understandably high, but it was always a distinct honor to be entrusted with hosting the occasion. Similarly, having the former food critic of the Arizona Republic Howard Seftel and his wife Kathleen dine with us, was one of my beloved evenings of service. 
I had only met the two briefly at local social engagements, so I didn't know how they might conduct themselves as diners, but I was overwhelmed by how complimentary they were of how far we had evolved in their eyes, beyond the experience they had previously recognized with five stars and glowing reviews over the course of a decade dining with our chef. From the tour we guided them on to the act structure of the evening as a performance, they not only noticed, but celebrated every detail. For them to comment that a restaurant had become one of the best in the world made it feel like every day we committed to service that year was a moment rightly invested in our chef's vision. Before my year in the business, I thought I was a savvy diner, but there's always more to notice, consider, and learn from. In his book, Front of the House, which I turned to for guidance in my first few weeks of service, restaurateur Jeff Benjamin dedicates several sections of advice to readers on how to be a more compassionate diner. It's a topic I think about all the time, and something we regularly discussed in the restaurant. What were the most exceptional meals we had enjoyed? What made those experiences memorable? How were other places approaching an ideal dinner service? What could we do to make ours one of a kind? In my opinion, it's not only the establishment, it's the guests. Ultimately, we can set the table and prepare the food, but if a guest projects their anger or entitlement on the staff from the moment they arrive, it's always going to be a struggle instead of a dance. When I made this realization, it helped me grow as a diner and as a person. After all, how would you like to be treated? Whether it's in personal relationships or professional endeavors, one of the overall lessons I took away from this period in my life was acknowledging how much my conduct as a diner was a direct reflection of my character in all aspects of life. As a result, I've changed several characteristics of my behavior as a guest that are intended to serve as closing reflections for anyone open to having a dinner conversation with me. Arrival. There's a famous line in Brett Easton Ellis and Mary Heron's American Psycho when the main character, a sociopathic Wall Street banker, proclaims that he's not going anywhere without a reservation. While I'm generally against sociopathic behavior, I've got to agree on this point. It's always better to reserve a table instead of showing up and making demands. When I see a group of six arrive at a restaurant at 8 p.m. on a packed Saturday night and try to intimidate a host to produce a table like a ticket at the gate for a fully booked flight, it makes me want to call them out like correcting an entitled passenger trying to cut their way in front of those of us patiently waiting to board a plane. Nearly every night of service at our restaurant, there would be at least a couple of people, if not a large group, who would wander in during service and expect to be seated, immediately requiring very audible attention that would disrupt our guests. Not only that, but they would demand an explanation for why we couldn't accommodate them on such short notice. But there's a table right there. Can't you just seat us there and bring us a menu? Unfortunately, we cannot. However, I can produce a business card from my breast pocket and kindly encourage you to come back on another evening when we have an opportunity to properly prepare. It's not that we don't want you to join us. It's that we don't have extra food prepared, staff available, or even enough dishes to set a table for you. Please make a reservation. And when you do, please honor it. I can't stress this enough. Never will I ever double book an evening and at the last minute decide which reservation to honor. It's completely disrespectful to an establishment that not only costs them business, but creates waste in an industry where every ingredient is precious. Don't be the flake who RSVPs for a dinner party and doesn't show up. Be a person of your word, and if you want to behave with an air of class, we would all appreciate it if you showed up as close to on time as you can. Arriving an hour late completely ruins the days of painstaking work it takes to orchestrate the perfect evening. Think of a dining experience like having tickets to a show, and you'll start to understand why I apply this philosophy to my own scheduling. Electronics. Smartphones have revolutionized society, so it's only reasonable that dining norms follow suit and develop updated considerations when it comes to etiquette. When I go out to dinner, I like to think about my phone like we're about to take flight. Set the internet on airplane mode, silence the ringer, and turn off the sounds for incoming messages, typing clicks, and especially the camera shutter. If you want to take pictures, we consider it a compliment and utterly encourage you, but out of respect to other diners, it becomes incredibly distracting if the shutter noise is activated and you're taking hundreds of pictures to the point when it starts to sound like we're at a fashion show instead of hosting a meal. 
Having the noises activated on your phone serves as a distraction to yourself more than anyone because it draws your attention away from enjoying the evening and needles you to text at the table at best and answer the phone so everyone can hear your conversation at worst. If I ever need to speak to someone on the phone, my approach is to quietly step outside for a moment. After all, one doesn't have to be a surgeon in order to know how to politely make a call. Moreover, recent trends such as wearing headphones while dining and even watching movies on tablets during service completely undermine the interpersonal aspects of sharing public spaces. Such conduct comes across as incredibly condescending to workers. Wearing headphones and earbuds while someone is trying to speak with you is a form of disrespect I first encountered in the classroom, but now unfortunately see everywhere, especially when it comes to interacting with cashiers. At some point in American culture, people started attaching headphones to their ears to silence their surroundings, speaking into microphones to hear their own voices, and affixing their eyes to gadgets to avoid making eye contact with others. Common courtesy is sadly becoming antiquated in the physical world, as society is increasingly distracted by the digital landscape. I don't think people need to make a singular choice, but I do believe that decency requires making mindful decisions about how we interact with one another, including our devices. Tipping. A common way of showing appreciation for hospitality services is to leave additional currency for workers, but the act is far more complicated than it seems on the surface. It's important to recognize that every business is different, especially when it comes to distributing tips. My restaurant was unique in the way that 22% gratuity was factored into purchasing a ticket for dinner in advance, but never distributed to us in addition to our wage for a shift. Of particular note, there were two nights I can recall when the host left a $1,000 tip, but the front of the house was never compensated. It was obviously a point of heated disagreement between myself and our chef that evolved over the course of my year in service, as someone with no previous experience in hospitality, I agreed to the terms our chef initially presented, but as I grew more experienced and began to have pointed conversations with other workers in the industry, it quickly became apparent that the way tipping was structured at our restaurant was exploitative. To my relief, the week after my departure, our chef finally adjusted his policy to allow the front of the house to accept any tips handed to them in cash. Instead of viewing the change as a personal slight, I saw the gesture as a small personal victory my small act of protest helped secure. Ironically, I'm happy to report that the Kiwis tipped everyone a $100 bill the evening the policy changed at the restaurant's daily meeting. But it isn't just about the extra cash in workers' pockets. Tipping is a way of acknowledging that minimum wage simply isn't enough. While creative and empathic solutions are becoming increasingly practiced in the service industry, there's always going to be a divide between those who can afford to dine out and those who can't afford not to wait on them. Growing up in the military, it was common when I was a teenager to bag groceries to earn extra money beyond an allowance. Depending on the day's volume and one's demeanor, you could make over $100 in a few hours ensuring eggs were gently packed and engaging in polite conversation as you escorted them to a patron's car. We didn't get a wage, but tipping was generally practiced and paid well enough that the majority of people bagging groceries were actually adults more than twice my age. As a community, the military managed to create an unspoken culture of support for those of us on the other side of a purchase, as long as we were willing to provide a service. I'm not sure why the rest of society seems to expect extraordinary service for free, but I gesture that it has something to do with sacrifice. There's a distinct difference between being appreciated and valued in an economy. The former is cheap, and the latter is fair. Spend some time making lattes for people placing orders in sunglasses and headphones. Mixing drinks behind a bar with two layers of drunks on the other side shouting orders. Or interacting with anyone who insists, the customer is always right. I can guarantee the experience will change your perspective. Not only in the service industry, but in every aspect of business. For most workers, choosing the service industry isn't a preference, it's a necessity. So, when I think about whether I want to spend money on an expensive meal where the dishes are valued, I also consider whether the service is equally valued, or merely appreciated. Instead of placing a bet on how fairly a business treats its staff, I'd rather use the same money to leave a tip that goes directly to workers. Restrooms. My third grade English teacher, Mrs. Leong, taught me that a person should return anything you use in better condition than you received it in. It's a lesson that stuck with me throughout life, 
and holds especially true when it comes to using a restroom in public or at someone's home. If you spent time in the military scrubbing latrines or maintaining them at a restaurant, you know exactly what I mean. People can act like pigs in a sty when it comes to assuming that someone else will clean up after them because it's their job. But I sincerely hope, after the current viral scare, that the average guest will consider leaving restrooms at least in the condition they found them in. To stress the importance of this point, I want to share one of the most unpleasant and degrading experiences of my time at the restaurant. It involved a family of six with two young teenaged girls. Aside from the way the two children were on their phones the entire evening and wasted dozens of courses they neglected, the real distraction was how they kept leaving the table after every course to go to the restroom. It made delivering courses together impossible and even more difficult to maintain the restrooms that they were desecrating with linens strewn all over the floor and trails of water sprayed all over the counter that actually dripped into the dining room. After half a dozen rounds of this behavior, I thought I had reached the limits of my patience, but the final time I went to clean up after them, I noticed that the roll of toilet paper was missing along with the spindle. Did they take it? Long spools of toilet paper had been rolled across the floor, but there was no sign of the spindle. Should I go back to the table and ask? I could feel the stress of needing to move like a ninja to quickly clean the area and return to the dining room, but I couldn't leave it in such a condition for the next guest. With no clear alternative, I turned the restroom upside down like someone looking for their wallet trying to find the spindle. The last place I looked was in the sanitary bin, and there was a large clump of tissue soiled with menstrual blood. Fortunately, there were nitrile gloves in the cleaning cabinet, so I checked the contents of the bin, and lo and behold, the spindle had been hidden inside the clump of soiled tissue. They had gone too far, and I admittedly lost my cool. I cleaned the restroom in a fury and returned to the dining room to speak with their mother. With an earshot of the young girls, I simply asked, Ma'am, are you aware of what your children have been doing to our restroom? The girls went pale white, but only for a moment. They knew what was about to happen. Their mother answered, No, and immediately took offense. Isn't it your job to clean the restroom? I replied, Yes, ma'am, I'll take care of it, and returned to the kitchen to warn our chef of their potentially being upset by my inquiry. What happened? Our chef replied as he looked into the dining room and saw the mother staring in our direction. We both agreed I was done at their table, and he told me to wait in the back kitchen to explain the situation. Once he heard the story, he was disgusted, but he also knew that he was the only person who could de-escalate the situation. I'm not sure what he said before they departed, but my point in sharing the story is that he never should have had to apologize for the misbehavior of someone's children who should have known better than to treat public spaces as well as people in service, like the refuse they pitched onto the floor. In my experience, guests who behave reprehensibly in the restroom, by urinating on the floor and doing drugs, are the exact same guests who do things like blow their noses into expensive linen and hand their gum to waiters to dispose of, instead of politely going to the restroom to do so themselves. Most establishments don't have the ambitious standards of tending to the restrooms after each guest, but I would gesture that the average restaurant has an expectation that they'll at least tidy up the restroom once an hour. If not, things can quickly become unsanitary and necessities might run out of stock. And if they haven't, people like myself and our chef actually lend a helping hand whenever we're in public spaces. We wipe drenched counters, throw away paper towels that people chuck on the floor, and subtly let staff know when supplies have run out. Not out of habit, but out of respect for the spaces we share. Please leave them at least like you found them. Attire. One of the conversations I have with students in public speaking courses is being considerate of how you dress for an occasion. Your appearance is the first impression you make when you're introduced, so try not to signal to people that you don't care about the audience, location, or the engagement. Granted, the conversation is usually with teenagers in sandals, short shorts, and tank tops, but I think it applies to everyone. Managing expectations and anticipating cultural norms can be tricky waters to navigate, but it's fundamentally about demonstrating a subtle message of respect for the atmosphere that's trying to be created by a restaurant staff as well as their guests. As a general rule, try not to be Bjork in the swan dress at the Oscars unless you're Bjork at the Oscars. For our restaurant, we never communicated a dress code but virtually everyone would come to dinner in what most would consider business casual in American culture. A dress for ladies 
and at least a button-up shirt with closed-toed shoes for gentlemen. The waitstaff of our restaurant always wore suits with ties, and the kitchen always wore crisp cotton chef's coats buttoned to the collar. Our intention was to communicate to our guests that we want you to see us at our very best. Does that mean we expect you to show up in a ball gown or tuxedo at your very best? Certainly not, unless maybe we were on a cruise ship. On the other side of the spectrum, we generally expect you not to dress like you're at the gym or emerging from a pornography set. Trust me. I've seen a woman dine with us in yoga shorts and a sports bra for a meal that was over $500, and she was completely oblivious to how much of a distraction it was for everyone the entire evening. That may sound catty, but a woman actually dined with us wearing a gold-colored leotard cat suit to match her cat eyes, so I can attest that she was cattier. Beverages. Our goal as a waitstaff was always to enthusiastically greet guests at the entrance of the restaurant with a cocktail that we prepared in front of them as we double-checked their reservation in the background and ensured they were seated at the proper table. Our intention was to immediately disarm any hesitance or stress a guest might be carrying with them on the drive. We wanted everyone to feel relieved that they had finally arrived at our home and were sincerely excited they were joining us. The strategy wasn't about getting people drunk early in the evening, it was about creating a welcoming atmosphere and imitating the first action a host would usually take at a residential dinner party. In tandem, within seconds of being seated, guests would have glasses of water to help stay hydrated. Water is incredibly precious in the desert, and I knew it bothered our chef to have to triple filter local tap water to meet his standards, but water service is a critical aspect of service. I'm not saying every restaurant needs a water sommelier, but it's important for guests to stay hydrated as well as cleanse their palate throughout the evening. For all of these reasons, I personally prefer to purchase sparkling water when I go out to dine. There are individuals, not me, with palates that can sense the discernible differences between Pellegrino and Perrier, like Coke and Pepsi, which is why many restaurants have options for guests, but it all boils down to what makes you feel comfortable and keeps you hydrated. The same can be said for the vast array of alcoholic beverages that guests have at this moment in history. Over a hundred beer styles with thousands of producers, wine vintages covering decades and terroir that's produced grapes for centuries, sake from various grains and grades of quality, mead from honey derived from innumerable combinations of flowers and bees, and distilled spirits extracted from or infused with every ingredient imaginable. Chances are that you already know what you like, but expecting every restaurant you dine in to have Miller High Life or you won't drink anything is getting a bit too insistent. No restaurant has the storage of a wholesale warehouse, and we want to provide you with the best products we have access to, so sometimes it's worth shying away from your comfort zone to discover something new. Given the opportunity, we relish introducing guests to unfamiliar beverages that might expand their concept of the flavors that an artisanal beer, cellared wine, or handcrafted cocktail can impart. Thoughtfully paired with dinner courses, the combination can produce the sublime. Hence, my recommendation for diners, including myself, is to order a beverage pairing upgrade whenever it's offered. The cost might initially seem like buying a car at sticker value, but I can assure you that you're getting more variety throughout the meal that builds toward bolder flavors and actually saves money per glass than you would ordering a la carte. For example, if you're a person who orders multiple rounds of wine by the glass at $15 from a bottle that contains at least four glasses, why wouldn't you order a bottle for $40 to get a bit more for significantly less with the demonstration of bottle service to boot? For me, it's an easy choice to make as a generally trusting person, but for the most discerning of guests, it's always a pleasure to share a bottle that likely took us having a long-term friendship with a producer or distributor. There were bottles in our collection that went back decades from incredibly small yields across the planet that were biding their time in our cellar for the right guests to come along and celebrate their attributes. So we always revered an opportunity to open, decant, and pour such rarities. Ultimately, regardless of one's preferences, it's about managing your disposition. If you have three double bourbons before the first course, it's clear to everyone that your intention is to get wasted instead of savoring the evening. I can't tell you the number of people who would get dropped off by a ride-sharing service carrying red Solo cups that they would throw into the bushes at worst or hand off to me in exchange for another cocktail when they arrived at best. Such entrances inevitably foreshadow sloppy conclusions. Moreover, excessive drinking, especially distilled spirits early in a meal, can devastate your palate. Want to quickly test if someone was too intoxicated at a meal? 
ask them what their favorite courses were. If they say the first two, then I can guarantee that their judgment was clouded. It's taken the realization that I've been that person at meals, as well as dined with hundreds of acquaintances who've been guilty of the same conduct, that my own behavior has dramatically changed. Personally, if not indulging in a beverage pairing, I enjoy starting with a pint of beer, progressing to a glass of wine, and finishing with a nightcap of whiskey. But I know my preferences will change as long as I continue to keep an open mind. To each their own. Clearing. No one wants you to work when you're dining out, especially when it comes to table maintenance. Whether it's dishes, utensils, or stemware, please let the staff clear items from the table when you're finished, instead of attempting to hand them off to us in passing. As our GM emphasized on a regular basis, it's about grace. Believe it or not, we would have involved discussions and practice sessions when it came to the most elegant way to handle table maintenance in order not to disturb a conversation at a table and ensure we were as efficient as possible when collecting items so we wouldn't have to make multiple trips. Most guests don't realize it, but if you push your items away from you, it signals that you want them gone immediately. In turn, that person's area needs to be cleared separately and creates twice the amount of time needed to maintain a table. Much like waiting for everyone to be served to begin eating, it's equally respectful to let everyone finish so the table can elegantly be reset in unison. And if there's a spill or mess of some sort, I imagine that one of us either heard it or were already watching your table, so it should be attended to immediately. However, a subtle raising of your hand or eye contact with the nearest staff member will ensure that your table is descended on like a special forces team called in to rescue you from an embassy. Snapping your fingers or shouting across the room will have the opposite response. You'll certainly get our attention, but being treated like a pet being trained makes it extremely difficult to maintain our rapport with you for the remainder of the evening. Of all my dining experiences, the staff at Central in Peru performed the most impressive response I've ever seen to a disruption at a table. Admittedly, I spilled a drink during an animated gesture and was horrified. Instead of making a ruckus to draw further attention to our table, however, they actually invited our table on a behind-the-scenes tour of the restaurant while they covertly reset the entire table like it was staged when we originally sat down. They even brought me a fresh replacement drink to boot. That's world-class service. Such examples are practices we deeply consider and try to anticipate. While I personally have an industry habit of stacking plates at casual restaurants so a waiter can readily pick them up with one hand, it's an action I no longer take when a restaurant aspires to being elegant. It's far better to sit back and appreciate the technique of timed ballet service from the left and synchronous clearing from the right. Elegance requires precision and a little room to clear your space. Patience. A guest should never feel like they're waiting for something. However, it's important to acknowledge that there's a difference between the amount of time it actually takes to craft a mojito and the perception that we're taking our time coaxing the mint leaves to sprout. Time is highly subjective in a restaurant, based on one's perspective. For guests, everything seems to take three times longer than it actually requires. For servers, those same five minutes feel like they're taking 15, but we're objectively moving at three times the speed the average person would take to complete the same task. Unless you've honestly kept track of the time on your watch, I doubt you've actually waited 15 minutes. In no other aspect of a restaurant does this apply to more than a completed dish waiting on the pass like a flower wilting in extreme heat. Seconds feel like frantic minutes to the culinary team, searching for hands to walk a course to its destination. The pressure is incredibly high to have each component of a course coalesce in a crescendo. When it does, diners notice. When it doesn't, diners really notice. And I can guarantee you that leaders like our chef always notice. If a hollandaise sauce broke and needed to be restarted from scratch, requiring less than two minutes, the intensity of the silence for those moments felt like sweating under interrogation lights for half an hour. The days of monastically preparing the ingredients likely took days, so putting their flavor in jeopardy was a cardinal sin. I can painfully recall an evening when a cold dessert with a mousse was on the menu that had to be walked by the expediter or busser within moments of plating as I trailed behind carrying liquid nitrogen in one hand and boiling cinnamon water in the other to create a fog table side while explaining the course. The timing required that I labeled the boiling water from the hotline, or stovetop, into a metal cocktail shaker, while someone from the culinary team poured the liquid nitrogen into a saucier or gravy boat for me to pick up. 
Rushing was always dangerous, and on this particular night, I learned the hard way by missing the mark with the ladle, spilling boiling cinnamon water all over my right hand. The mistake immediately blistered, and the pain was physically the worst I experienced all year. Instead of making a scene, however, the sous chef told me to hold my hand under cold water in the sink while they plated the course a second time. The GM and our chef weren't available at the moment, so everyone was sizing me up to see if I'd be able to return to finish walking the course. It was a true test of my willpower and strength. So when the expediter asked if I was good to go, there was no question in my mind whether I was going to return to ladle the boiling water with my left hand this time and explain the dish as if nothing had happened. The burn happened so fast that it left a mark on my hand that drew a border in the shape of my shirt's cuff that visibly divided blister from flesh. In American culture, the average diner is used to waiting a little between courses, but our goal was always to exceed those general expectations by never having anyone wait more than five minutes, even if we were injured, before they would have a fresh delectable placed in front of them to enjoy. As a waiter, it was incredibly challenging to maintain such a standard, but having a guest comment how much they appreciate our rapid response to their request always made it a bit easier to keep up the pace instead of the unrealistic demands of a society trained by technology to expect instant gratification. Under our uniforms, we're just as human as our guests, so showing a little empathy goes a long way. There's likely a reason for any delay you may experience, and it's far from intentional. Good things happen to those with patience. Eventually, I'm told. Departure. All evenings must come to an end. How they end, much like an unpredictable final act of a movie or reaching the fulfilling conclusion of a memoir, often dictates how a guest remembers their experience. Did we exceed their expectations, or did we falter in some way? We always want to know why, in either case. Earning repeat business is certainly part of the equation, but our intention in asking how a guest's evening felt comes from a pronounced calling to refine every service like a knife sharpening with each pass over a stone. Constructive advice is always more productive than receiving superficial criticism. From the invitation to enjoy coffee service or a nightcap, to the presentation of the bill and the way we earnestly say, have a wonderful rest of your evening, while holding the door for guests exiting the restaurant, we sincerely hope you remember us fondly. When I reflect on the services I was a part of at the restaurant, much like the personal and professional relationships my life has known, the periods of struggle have always been overshadowed by the moments of fellowship and celebration, especially at restaurants. A mindset that values growth can overcome any challenge, but it takes courage. A step forward often requires help from the person next to us. Whether it's tending to your mental health, voicing what's gone unsaid to the ones we love out of fear, or honoring the spirit that drives us all to pursue our dreams, knowing how to say farewell with dignity and grace is a hallmark of one's character. Our time together may never reach perfection, but the moments we share will always provide us with an opportunity to experience what it takes to feel better. Epilogue 1 June 2020. Dear Editor, if you've read this far, please consider this manuscript as evidence of my ability to contribute to your food writing section. They say those who can do and those who can't teach, but there are a significant number of us who are capable of both. Over the past several decades, I've been hired as an adjunct professor with little hope of long-term security, but I hope that if you shared a similar experience and agree that anyone with the discipline it takes to commit their life to the study of a field's discoveries, mastering their practice through first-hand experience, and pursuing their dreams of sharing the knowledge they've accumulated should be celebrated rather than sentenced to living hand-to-mouth. Although I may lack the amount of journalistic experience other applicants possess, I've lived a life of service in many non-traditional forms, as a child raised by a military community, a student who graduated from an elite academy, an officer who supervised food and lodging operations for our country's soldiers, a speech and debate coach for college students, an award-winning educator for 10 years, and a brief period as a host in one of the greatest restaurants in the world. Of all the roles I've accepted in my life, however, I've always returned to writing and been obsessed with culinary experiences. My former chef told me many times that everyone should spend a day as a dishwasher in order to appreciate how hard their circumstances can be. I couldn't agree more. Whether it be washing dishes in a professional kitchen or teaching the future leaders of industries, service has taught me many lessons. 
but none more valuable than empathy for my colleagues and members of our community. People in hospitality are part of a traveling camp who go when we can no longer stay, but we're all longing for a place of our own. Many, like myself, are ready to marry into a family instead of continuing to date. We've all been searching for meaningful labor in our lives, and we're through waiting. So I hope you're looking for someone who feels the same way. I'd like to spend the rest of my days writing about the service industry and bring further dignity to workers who toil behind the scenes. Together, I believe we can evolve food writing from superficial criticism toward constructive dialogue. All it takes is a little empathy and viewing challenges as an opportunity to grow. Cheers. Nick Butler, PhD.